this is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hey everyone, it's Matt Takamatsu, and in this episode today we are joined by Nick Lust. Nick is a uh, criminal defense lawyer here in Ottawa, and he's a relatively recent call, having been called to the bar just about two years ago. And Nick is a solo practitioner. So now, in contrast to those of us who would probably prefer to seek the comfort um, of seeking out an associate position at an established firm uh, immediately after graduating and completing articles, Nick decided to take the exact opposite route and went and opened up his own solo practice right after finishing his articles. And in this short period of time, uh, Nick has been able to foster a thriving criminal defense practice and is now here today to share with us his insights um, about what this journey has been like. So thank you for joining us today, Nick. No problem. So just as an initial starting question, uh, Nick, could you just explain to us how you first came to find yourself practicing law? Yeah, I uh, had a, I definitely had a uh, unusual path to law, probably not a path that many share. Basically, well before law school, even before university, uh, out, out, right after high school, I pursued a career in music, not law. Law wasn't even on my mind. And uh, I was playing in a band uh, in high school. We were touring. We played some shows. And that was, that's what I enjoyed doing. So after high school, I moved to Toronto. And I went to uh, this, I guess you could call it a college. And uh, was for audio engineering. Uh, just how to produce and how to record, uh, how to do sound effects, things like that. And while I was in Toronto, I was DJing. I was playing, I was DJing house music at different clubs unsuccessfully. And I was making, I guess I was making jingles for TV shows, commercials, podcasts unsuccessfully. And I was living in a dump in Toronto. Uh, I just remember like it was the size of what a normal bedroom was. There were rats, I wasn't making good money, um, and I just had enough. And I decided I needed to do something different because there was no career path down this way, at least for me, because I just wasn't good enough. So I always, I did have in the back of my mind at that time to, be, to pursue law because my dad was a lawyer. He practiced... Uh, he was a sole practitioner and he did uh, personal injury insurance claims, disability benefits, things like that. Nothing that I'm, I was or am interested in to this day. So um, at basically at 20, uh, 22 years old, I moved back to Ottawa and I started, um, I started a university at the University of Ottawa and I did a degree in political science and after that, that's when I wrote the LSAT and I eventually got into law school. So 
my path was definitely unorthodox and you definitely don't always have to have it in your mind that you're going to be a lawyer to go to law school and you don't have to go to law school right outside of university because like me i i went uh i was definitely a bit older than most people now were you were you making deep house tracks or progressive stuff like what was sort of music yeah uh, so i was making an assortment of things i would say primarily i was making progressive it's called progressive house it's not that popular anymore but uh, back when i was you know this is way before your time i know you're like 18 years old but uh i went to like digital dreams and 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 valve and all that stuff so I'm familiar. Yeah, like I said, you know, you're 18, and yeah. those are the kind of things you would do. But back in the in the real days, when I was, you know, in the scene, um, electronic music was just starting to really come mainstream. And of course, if you're Canadian and you're into an electronic music, and it's like 2008, 2009, everybody loved Dead Mouse. Dead Mouse made a very distinct style of music that I, I loved. His first few albums, um, I forget what they were called, something something better name. And I love those albums so much. So I, I made music pretty similar to that. And I was also in a like a group with another guy, like a Daft Punk thing, except that we weren't Daft Punk and uh, we weren't good. And we would make more commercial style dance music and we would hire singers to get on them uh, with money that we didn't have and the singers sucked. Uh, And then later on, I started making, I did make some deep house. I made some trance music. I made some minimal house. Um, And there's still some things on, there are still some songs on YouTube. And I I do have a SoundCloud that's pretty dated. I'm not going to say what the handle is because (laughs) I don't really want people to to listen to it. But I actually wasn't bad. I I really wasn't that bad. And you can also uh, find the band that I played in 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 high school, which was uh, a death metal band. So I played death metal, deathcore, hardcore, noisecore. I I played that stuff too. I'm really an amazing human being. I know. (laughs) So you, you, you chased your, your hopes and dreams uh, for a little bit of your life yet. Uh, and it sounds like you sort of shifted because the money wasn't there. So you, you shifted to law school um, in the hopes of becoming a lawyer. Uh, my next question for you then will be why uh, criminal defense, given that it's sort of like a notorious area of being not sort of an area, at least from my understanding, um, where there's always piles and piles of money if you if you want to make money why would you not go to um say bay street um that corporate route well i don't hate myself (laughs) if i hated myself then of course i think i'd be frontline corporate worker but jokes aside to get back to your question you know it just wasn't it wasn't all about money but the one the lifestyle i had in toronto was horrible like it was really i was eating gas station food every day living in a little box in a basement making nothing it was just not a good lifestyle and it's a fight or flight thing. Like at some point you hit, you kind of hit a wall where you're like, I got to do something. So that was one, that was the money part. But two, I just felt a lack of purpose DJing and making tunes. I just didn't feel like I was really doing anything. I didn't think I was doing anything important. Not to say that you have to do something important to feel a purpose, uh, I'm not putting down any musicians, but 
just for me, I just felt like I wasn't doing anything important. And I kind of uh, derive a, a self like purpose for myself when I feel like I'm doing something for people, like something important. So that's, that's the motivator. And then as far as criminal law is concerned, um, you know, and, and I don't mind sharing this because I think it's important for people to know exactly where I come from. But when I was in high school, I had legal trouble and I got into trouble. It was nothing too serious, but at the time I thought my life was over and I thought I was screwed and my parents didn't want anything to do with me. And I was flunked out of high school and, um, you know, someone in this field lifted me out of that. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to say who, but someone in this field lifted me out of that. And so going into law school, I kind of had that in the back of my mind that that was an area that I was familiar with and that good work could be done there. And it's also, I think, by far the most interesting. I think uh, criminal law is way more interesting than Bay Street. You know, those people sit down in chairs all day and they write. That's boring. That's not fun. They don't do trials that much. That's just not fun. I have a friend who works in IP law and he sits in a chair so much that he's getting injured now from basic activity that we used to do. It's just not an amazing lifestyle. I don't think it's interesting work. I think criminal law goes down to, you know, this basic idea of what we think is right and wrong and what we should do to those wrong people. So I thought that was the most interesting. I had some background in it and uh, that's why I decided to go that way. Now, the the question is why defense, you know, because I did want to be a crown at the beginning. Well, I I appreciate you sharing that story. I know the, um, for me personally, the human aspect of uh, criminal law. And I mean, like you said, you're you're on both sides of it as the side helping and the side being helped. Um, I know, I know that this type of work can definitely have a significant impact on just one person because it's really life crises that they're dealing with and they're, you know, they're putting all your hope in you, into you as a criminal defense lawyer. And I really agree with being attracted to that aspect of the practice myself. Now, my next question for you then is why solo? Uh, Why did you decide to become a solo practitioner? I mean, you're a two-year call and you, um, it seems intimidating to go off by yourself and open your own practice without any type of mentorship. I know it doesn't seem like the safest route. Um, for a lot of people, myself um, included, which is sort of why I wanted to talk. And I mean, my curiosity about that has sort of sparked my interest to make this episode. Well, thank you. I know I'm a role model for you. And I know you look up to me as as kind of like, wow. But um, to, to your question, just to kind of explain more how I got to where I got to from law school, I wanted to be a crown. That was actually what I wanted to do. I felt uh, this sense of purpose and dutifulness, you know, upholding the laws and protecting people. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be called the crown. I thought there was something prestigious about being called the crown, crown attorney. I mean, that sounds nice, right? Defense attorney. That kind of sounds like, you know, I think a better call Saul, I, you know, it, something about the crown. So, um, I worked, I summered in the Crown's office and I thought it was okay. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. And 
I had an absolute shit experience trying to pursue that life. During my articling, I interviewed uh, probably, you know, 15 different crown offices. I sacrificed a, a personal relationship to do it, I would say. I spent an entire summer interviewing everywhere. I interviewed in, uh, I didn't even get an interview in Ottawa actually, but I interviewed in Cornwall, Barrie, uh, St. Catharines, London, Kitchener, Windsor, two different ones in, in Toronto. Uh, there's a few more, but I interviewed everywhere and you know, I live in Ottawa. And so I would, I spent the summer, I spent the summer using my student line of credit, getting hotel rooms and, and, and driving from to different places. And the crown interviews are substantive. They ask you questions about the law. So I spent my summer, uh, basically not only working at the crown's office, like I was working at the office and I was driving everywhere, studying and going to hotels. And I didn't get a single offer, 15 different crown places. I didn't get a single offer. I had, uh, I probably had one of, if not the highest average, as far as criminal law cases, criminal law courses went to law school. I was getting A's in most of my crim classes. I finished at the top of some of my crim classes. And my first year of law school, I worked an entire summer for a very good defense firm in Ottawa uh, at Abigail Goldstein. I worked there for summer and I, you know, I wrote memos for trials and I had good experience. I definitely had a leg up on other people. So I had the experience, I had the grades and I did, I, I committed a summer, 15 different interviews on a single job offer. It was de demoralizing. I wanted to quit. I didn't want to get into law. I wanted to stop. Like, you know, uh, a lot of people know the stress that is associated with being a third year lawsuit without articling. It's a really stressful thing to do. And, and I didn't get articling until the summer of my third year, like right at the summer, right at the end. So I just had a, such a terrible experience trying to get a crown position and it it really jaded me you know my, my my dad had a buddy from law school who who ran a sole practice in toronto and he basically did not pay very much and most of the students he hired were from toronto because they would have to live at home for a lack of salary uh so my i managed to get an interview so another drive down and he was the first person that actually offered me a job and i took it and I didn't even think I wanted to work in defense. Uh, so I took it. And after working there, I realized, and we can get into the more specific details, but after working there, I was pretty sure, yeah, I want, I think I want to be defense and I want to start my own practice. So that's really, it really came about, about of me being jaded by the process of becoming a crown through law school. And through the opportunities that presented themselves to me last second to become a defense attorney, because if anyone tells you morally, I, I have to be one or the other, I think you really need to step outside of that very narrow minded way of thinking 
you need to experience both and stop thinking that life is a certain way and that certain people who do certain things are they are that you need to experience both sides before you really determine what you want to do so that's how i basically got into solo without getting into the, the nitty-gritty that's how i got into solo yeah I, I sort of i mean i had a bit of a my experience is very different actually i shouldn't i should have premise it by saying it's similar but i my experience was that i wanted to be a police officer then i wanted to be a crown uh however the the competitiveness of being a crown plus some of the stuff i was learning in school sort of dissuaded me from actually pursuing that route so i went the uh, uh the polar opposite you know, when, when you're young, when you're young, you're very idealistic. And in terms of looking at the career routes that you have available to you, if you're a very idealistic person, you're going to think being a police officer is the only thing you want to do. I can't imagine doing anything else. If you're a very idealistic person in the other sense, you're thinking I could only be a defense lawyer. I can never put anyone in jail. Those are bad people. I can never do that. It's not until you grow and mature and experience both sides and see both sides of perspective that you get a better understanding of yourself. You get a better understanding of life and the system and a better understanding of what you want to do. So I completely understand where you're coming from because, you know, when you're young and you don't have a lot of life experience, you kind of have a very idealistic way of thinking about yeah. things. I'm still probably very idealistic. I know I've seen <laughs> but... it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. For all the listeners, um, just to put in some context, me and Nick worked in the same office. Um, so we had very regular negative interactions with one another. And Well, most of my conversations are negative. You know that yeah. I'm a very pessimistic person. <laughs> so you know, it is, it is what it is. Yes. All right. So go, going back to your experience in the, in the solo practicing world what was the main main draw for for you did you ever like because you worked at a solo practice or with a solo practitioner um like was did it was it ever in your mind to become an associate somewhere why did you just immediately jump into to solo practice you know what um the funny thing about that is and i think a, a lot of students might uh, understand where i'm coming from here i didn't even think becoming a solo practitioner was possible right out of law school. That was not something I thought was even doable. I didn't think you could do that. I thought that was negligent. I thought like you have to have some experience under your belt before you do it. So it wasn't even on my mind. I didn't think it was possible. I know that they teach, I think it's relatively new, but I know they teach a course at, uh, at the law school about how to operate a practice, but you know, in my head, I thought I need to work at a firm. I need to be an associate. I need to be a crown. I cannot go off by myself. Like I have no clue what I'm doing. So uh, when it really clicked for me was working at was articling. Uh, my articling principal never worked at a firm. He never worked at a firm. He never worked at the crown's office. He graduated law school and he started his own practice. And 30, you know, 30 years later, he's still a, one of the more successful solo practitioners in criminal law in Toronto. And he answered a lot of the, 
the questions that I and most people would have when you're considering starting a practice. Um, you know, he answered, how do you even open it? What do you even do? You know, like what, what bank accounts, what do you mean books? How do you bill? How do you get clients? How do you record things? How do you handle cases? When do you get a student? You know, there's so many unanswered, ambiguous questions that are difficult to find answers to. You can't just Google it and find an answer to it. And he taught me all of those things. Those are things I wouldn't have learned otherwise. So, you know, when you're asking, had it, had it ever been in my mind? I don't think it's in most people's minds. I think most people think maybe one day I want to, um, but not until I heard a claim. And I did go the route of becoming an associate. I interviewed at all the crowns office, which is technically like an associate being a crown because you do have a supervisor. And I did interview at a couple defense firms. So I, I went that right way, but it was such a horrible experience that that's when I put my mind to the solo practice. And yeah, you just sort of jumped in and, 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 and won it. I mean, I feel like there's definitely that a mental block for most people. I mean, one being that it seems super risky, you're inexperienced and you sort of want that safety net or protection of having like a supervisor to sort of monitor um, what you're doing in the show. I mean, especially in criminal law too, that you're not going to, you know, screw up someone's life. There is a fine line and you have to be cognizant of it. There is a fine line, but a very clear line between having the confidence that you can learn what to do on your own and feeling as though I need some guidance before I do it. There's a very fine line there, right? You could, you know, you could feel like you could do it, but you can't. And you could feel like you need the help first, but you don't need it. There's a very fine line there. And you really have to ask yourself whether you think you can do it or not. And what do you do in those types of situations? Well, you need to talk first off, you have to talk to someone who runs a practice and you have to ask them, you know, what went into you starting a practice? Why did you get into the practice? You know, what does it take to open it? What do you need to be successful? And then you have to ask yourself whether you have those things. Can you do it? Right. And there's just a very long list of things you need, personality traits that you need to need that you need to have to be successful you know, going right to a solo because it is, it has its own unique problems and issues that are different from being an associate. I'm not saying it's easier or harder, but they both have unique problems. So you, you know, I would say talk to someone who runs a practice and ask them, you know, ask them about their experience and ask them what did they go through and what do they do to understand if, am I the person that Am I confident I could do it? Do I think I could do it? Or do I feel as though, you know what? I have to know my limitations. I do need some guidance first. Mm -hmm. So when you were starting out, could you give us some insights about what your day-to-day -day was like? Right when I started? Yeah. Right when I started, um, it was pretty bad. I had, obviously, I had no client. Let's, we'll, we'll talk about before my first client, but... Well, right when I opened up, basically my time was taken up by sitting in an office, looking at a phone, 
way before it can ring. Um, it was taken up by writing materials for my website. Uh, it was taken up by reading extensively different practical criminal law books. Uh, Eamon Law came out with a series of, of handbooks for practitioners, not so much theoretical academic stuff, but real practical considerations for someone working in different fields. So they had a, you know, a drinking and driving uh, series. They had a sexual assault series, how to defend the youth, uh, fraud. And so I was reading all of those. I was writing my website. I was, I was grinding, you know, I was working very long hours trying to make sure I was successful. So that's what like the day to day at the beginning looked like before I got my first client. And what was that first client like and how did you get him or her? Right. So the, the first client I got, um, the first client I got was a, a murder case and you know, that's, is that ever going to happen to anyone else? Probably not, but through circumstances, I won't get into uh, too much. Um, my services were needed for this type of case. And obviously, you know, all criminal lawyers know they need to have a certain uh, amount of years to qualify to represent uh, a murder case on a legal aid certificate. And I'm obviously not on that. So um, I had to do it with someone else. But that was my first, that was my first case was getting a call from a nor another lawyer being like, you know, you know, this guy, uh, I need you on this. Do you want to do it? And as someone who has never practiced law before, never had a case before, and someone calls me and says, do you want to do a murder? Uh, it's intimidating and exciting. And I obviously did it. Based on what I know of you, you're very like charismatic, um, hardworking, outgoing person. Please. Was there... <laughs> um, was there any hesitation to sort of say, you know, maybe this might not be the smartest, um, for even for the sake of the client, maybe they'll want somebody a little more experienced. So was there any hesitation to refer that client to somebody else? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Well, fuck no. <laughs> Absolutely not. Are you kidding me? No hesitation. I'll figure That's my motto. I'll figure it out. I took it, didn't even doubt it, took it right away. And now you have a thriving solo practice. So now you, you have murders, you have, I'm sure, obviously other cases. What does your, your caseload um, look like now as a two-year call? Yeah, um, I would, so the very first month, you know, I, I, I like to tell this to people. I, I know I told it to you and I, I told it to another uh, young associate who started his practice, Nathan Clark. Um, my first two months, I made $2,000 in total. Um, I was losing money big time. Uh, and then, you know, come to today and, and in the first two months, how many cases did I have? I had just a couple. Um, but now, uh, this past year I had 80, which I think is a, a pretty good amount for solo practice. Uh, and I do have varying levels of different files. I have uh, sexual assault, human trafficking, murder, robbery, DUI, assault, 
I kind of represent uh, the whole spectrum. Uh, so my caseload, right, like as of right now, I do have to turn away some people. I do have to refer out cases. And um, even when those big cases come, I got to let them know, uh, listen, I'm a sole practitioner. Uh, so my ability to move the, your case along at a very fast pace, like a big firm, it's just not there. So I have to tell people that. And so, well, you say, you say now that you're... Um it's reached the point where you're actually referring cases to other people as a young lawyer, however, especially in those, um, those earlier, maybe the first year, those starting out months, do you have any, any flexibility in the types of cases that you take on? Or is there really, um, like an incentive to take on whatever you can to sort of keep those, that money rolling in, um, to ensure, you know, that your business stays afloat. When I first started, I took anything that walked, anything that talked. Um, I took, I try, I didn't end up taking it, but I, this, this individual called me with this fiduciary case about kick, being kicked out of his condo and he wanted to do some cross appeal. And I was like, yeah, you know, I, and, and my, I, I talked to my dad about it and he's like, what are you doing? He's like, don't do this. Are you insane? Uh, then I, I wrote wills for someone. No, I don't know anything. You know, I, I wrote wills, uh, which I needed help with doing that, obviously. And yeah, I mean, I was charging people less money than legal aid would pay me. And if any, any criminal defense lawyer knows, legal aid does not pay you very much. They really don't. And I was literally to get my private base up. I was charging people less uh, than I would be paid if they were using legal aid. So I took everything and anything and every case I took, I spent hours, I spent days reading uh, secondary resource material on the subject, looking at the case law, I had so much time that I was reading the case head to toe to be as, as well prepared as I could. And um, that's what allowed me to kind of grow. But yeah, at the very beginning, you got to take everything. You take everything that walks. Would you see that as sort of, I mean, a double-edged sword? I mean, that can be beneficial in the sense is that you're getting a very broad range of experience. But I mean, I'd imagine it can also have um, some cons as well. I mean, I, as people, we like to be picky about um, certain things. I guess my question, what I'm really trying to hit on the head here is, what are some major hurdles that you've experienced thus far being a solo practice practitioner? Yeah, you know, the, the hurdles that you talk about are the stress that come, first of all, first of all, with learning uh, an area you don't know. That's a hurdle, obviously. Um, but as far as like the hurdles that I have faced, um, I, I get, I, I don't want to say this for everyone, of course, there's some great lawyers out there, but I get the overwhelming impression that people are not uh, exactly excited that a new young lawyer is in town doing well. I don't feel uh, the warmth from a lot of people sometimes. And I find that I don't have that... Uh, 
I don't have that rapport with some of the crowns and it does make things difficult sometimes interacting with other lawyers, with other lawyers thinking that I'm, um, I'm, I'm an inexperienced idiot and that they can do whatever they want and have to deal with lawyers who don't know me that well, trying to push me around. So that's definitely a hurdle that I, that I do face. That would probably be the, the main hurdle. Do you, do you, um, feel that same way with, uh, judges as well in the sense of this, this voice in the back of your head kind of itching at you saying, maybe this judge, um, I'm prejudicing my clients in a sense by being a younger lawyer um, and the judge is more hesitant to award more weight to your argument or your credibility as a lawyer when you're going up against say uh, esteemed crown counsel. Yeah. You know, I remember um, I did this bail review application. It's basically an appeal on the original bail. And I had a great case. I had a great argument and I really should have won that. And I didn't. And I remember my two mentors telling me when you're young, you lose things you shouldn't. That's the reality. Am I prejudicing my clients? Well, listen, what do you want me to do? Nothing. Just never take anything. You have to take on the things and you have to try two times harder than senior counsel. You need to know that case better than anyone else. You need to know the case law better than anyone else. You need to know the new developments better than anyone else. You have to know the judges you're going uh, in front of better than anyone else when other people could get away with it. So I would say you're not prejudicing. Like, it's not your fault that a judge can't look past your age. Like, that's not your fault. You're not doing anything wrong. That's just a human that's just a human error mm -hmm. in a judge. Mm -hmm. You know, judges are humans. Everybody's a human. No one's perfect. And I, I do understand this, maybe this subconscious uh, tendency to find someone older to be more compelling because they're more experienced and you know them better. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. I, I understand that. But I don't think a prejudice, you know, to offset maybe that prejudice prejudice is to be more prepared than anybody else fair enough now shifting back to um i mean what we were just talking about how as a young lawyer do you market yourself in a successful way to get um clients constantly calling you as a you know a younger lawyer with uh, minimal experience i mean because i mean if you're someone who faces you know significant criminal charges or even maybe even like a traffic ticket or something, you want that to go away. Um, you're stressed. You want someone with a lot of experience to, I, I mean, like get a good result for you. And I mean, for most people, I, for myself included, I feel like I would go to somebody with years and years and years and years of experience. So how do you compete with that? Right. Um, how do you compete with that? Well, I'll ask you this. Uh, would you go, would you always choose a older doctor over a young one? What kind of, I'll ask, maybe you can answer this. What kind of advantages do you think a young doctor has over an older doctor, if any? You know, if you were looking at two doctors, do you think there's a difference between them? Um, I mean, if I'm going to be 
super technical about it. I'd like I'd, I would have want somebody probably more middle aged because then they have more experience than the younger doctor. But I mean, uh, I don't want to sound like uh, an asshole here, but maybe more stable hands than an older doctor and more, I mean, competent because I guess there is uh, a certain age when you start to let things slip. I don't know how. Well, well, I mean, the a doc. But there's a, the saying is the person who finished with a D plus and graduated medical school is a doctor, yeah. right? The, they're a doctor, just like the older person's a doctor. What is experience? How much do you put on experience? Um, so I'm kind of throwing out these rhetoricals, but that is a, a real issue when you're a young lawyer and you're starting your own practices. How do you get these clients to call, right? How do you, how do you do it? So you have to be objective and you have to acknowledge what things you have going for you versus what things you not have going for you. Okay. And some of the, I would say some of the main concerns that I hear from people is that they hate how difficult it is getting a hold of their lawyer. They hate how their lawyers won't talk to them unless they pay them and they hate not getting honest answers. Okay, so how do you market yourself as a young lawyer? You have to find your niche. And so what do I tell people? I tell them first off, I cost less than other people. And this isn't just the difference between going to one dog, you know, like a, what do you call them, a groomer to another, right? It's not like $100 versus $250. We're talking thousands of dollars, okay? Most people do not have that type of um, expendable income. So the first thing is, this is what I cost. Um, it's way less than what you're going to get with other people. And unlike other people, I'm going to tell you what, I answer my phone calls. I answer my emails. I don't have an assistant. I don't have a clerk. I don't have a student. You get me when you want to talk, okay? Second of all, the way I, I price myself and the way I bill, I don't charge people for emails. I don't charge people for phone calls. It's kind of built into a block fee, but I, I, I do have a, an agreement and a contract for what happens if you want to fire me halfway through, you probably have to pay me a block fee, but I don't, assuming everything goes well, I don't charge people for emails, phone calls, that stuff. I don't charge for it. So the number one thing when you're a young lawyer is you tell them, I'm going to take the best care of you. I'm going to take great care of you. You know, your life is on the line here. You don't want to be neglected. You don't want to get, yeah, you get this really senior lawyer, but they're not going to your court appearances. You know, they're not the one first reviewing your case. So they're not the ones answering your phone calls, right? They have other people who do that. Um, so the number one thing you do as a young lawyer is I'm going to take the best care of you. Okay. I'm going to be like your mom. <laughs> I'm going to take great care of you. Uh, the next thing I tell people is that, you know, I preface it with this. I can't speak to the other lawyers driver ambition but i'll tell you what i am hungry i work my ass off and i have a drive to win i have a drive to come up with the best possible outcome for you so i can't say if people who've been in here for 30 years have that drive or not anymore i can't say that but i could say maybe and i could guarantee you that i have that drive so not only am I going to take great care of you, but I'm also going to work my tail off for you. Like you might not get from other lawyers. And guess what? 
while I'm taking great care of you, while I'm working my tail off for you, you're saving money because I'm coming at a value. And the next thing comes, well, what about the case law? What about the law? And I tell people, you learn the law in law school, okay? You learn the law in law school. I have all the books. I went to law school. I've done a couple cases. I know the law. You don't have to worry about that. I'm a lawyer. That's my job. You don't think I know the law? So you kind of have to remind them that it's just like the doctor thing. Like I'm a doctor for a reason. I'm a license for a reason that I've been deemed, you know, educated and intellectual enough to work in this field. And that's what you have to remind people. Okay. So that that's the next thing. And, you know, you have to emphasize the things you're going to do for them that other firms may not get. So, the, the question then comes, well, what if they ask you, have you ever done this case before? Have you ever done anything like this? Obviously, as a long, young lawyer, you haven't. So how do you combat that? Well, that comes down to what I was talking about before. Go read the case law. Go buy those books, those practical books on, on practice management and, and the law and how to run a practice and tell them, you know, tell them, uh, no, but listen, I'll tell you exactly how assaults work, right? Well, this is what we do. We go to court. I'll get the evidence for you. You know, we're going to look at the holes in the uh, evidence. We'll see if there's any physical corroborating evidence right now. We'll see, you know, what kind of witness we're dealing with. Um, and we'll see, you know, what type of sentence that you could get. We'll see what our options are. You know, I'm just giving an example. Yeah. So if you know the law, then you can offset that ex- inexperience by kind of, doing the peacock and putting your feathers out and doing the little dance. Yeah. Okay. You talk about the law, you talk about how things are going to go. You tell them what you're going to do. So at the end of the day, here's what the client hears. Okay. This guy's going to take great care of me. He's going to answer all my phone calls. So I know if, you know, I need an update or anything, he'll be the one dealing with it. And I know he's a young, hungry person who is going to fight hard for me. And clearly, just by talking to him, he knows what he's doing. He's, he knows like the law and all of that. And he costs less. So I think that is how I have marketed myself and how I've been able to grow uh, a fairly large practice in my first year. And by the way, like all of that is true. Okay. I do price less. And I think that the, some of the inexperience I do have, even though now I do have some having trials and motions and all that bails and all that under my belt, um, you offset, offset that with extensive knowledge about the area and talking about the area. And you, and you also tell them, listen, I don't, if you're looking for that 30 year call, that's not me, right? but you haven't hung up the phone yet. So how important is that to you? Because I can tell you what, I know the law just like anyone else. So is that the most important thing to you? Because if you are looking for that 30 year call, like you should call somebody else and they never hang up. Mm -hmm. So is it fair then to suggest that confidence is a significant part of your marketing strategy, just being confident in yourself? And I, and I ask this question as sort of an important one, because as law students, a lot of us have imposter syndrome and, we struggle with confidence ourselves. Is this something you have always, like, are you, like, I know you're a confident person, um, but in like, in a good way, not, not that sort of cockiness um, type of confidence. That comes this, listen, this goes back to what I told you. 
are you confident and do you objectively know that you can do this or do you need more years? Do you need to be under someone? That's what you have to ask yourself for the very reason that you just asked me, because I am that kind of person who has confidence in myself and in my ability. And I think uh, I'm a, an alluring person to retain and hire because of the type of person that I am. And that's not to say that other people can't do it. But again, you need to ask yourself, can I talk the way that I'm talking? Can I hustle? Can I, do I have that confidence? Or, you know, there are some other lawyers uh, that, that, I, that I work with. They're smarter than me. And, you know, smart, the intelligence, intelligence isn't everything, but they're smarter than me for sure. And they're just not comfortable going off by themselves. Nothing wrong with that. So yes, you have to ask yourself, am I confident? Am I resourceful? Am I a problem solver? Am I going to work hard? Because those are that those are the things that you need to be successful. Right? You have to be confident. Could you imagine calling a young lawyer and and they answer the phone and they go, uh, uh, maybe I can help you. Are you going to hire that person? No, I don't want to, I don't want to trust you, but now you imagine talking to them and they go, you know what? I'm going to bust my ass. I'm going to bust my ass. I know the law and we're just not going to accept anything. We're just not going to get pushed over here. You and I are in this together and uh, that confidence instills trust. So yeah, you absolutely have to be confident. So it's not, yeah, it's not just, I mean, being confident isn't only just for you to retain business, but it's also beneficial for the client to, I mean, feel, you know, trust in, in you and your counsel. And I mean, it, it, it offers a sorts of a sense of sort of, I mean, ease their anxieties a bit um, by making them think that, yes, I made the right decision here. Well, confidence is a Swiss army knife. Uh, confidence obviously is used to gain the trust of the client, but also confidence, you know, confidence is the ability to swing the ax down on the wood without worrying. And what, what I mean by that is when you're by yourself, you have to have the confidence in your judgment that I can do a certain thing. I can do this, right? Like no one is going to be there to hold your hand. So, you know, when a judge makes a mistake, you the confidence is the ability to call the judge out. When the crown is being unreasonable, the confidence is having the ability to call the crown out. When you're reading the case and you see this defense that is not just basic, like it's maybe a, evident, a very complex evident, uh, evidentiary issue, confidence is the ability to follow through with that and when people along the way and this happens to me all the time when a jpt judge or a crown says ah, that's nonsense that's why are you even going there mr lux confidence is having the ability to tell them uh it's my job to determine what i think is relevant for my client that is confidence so you know with the axe thing you know when you're swinging down and you're cutting an a, a piece of wood in half. You have to have the confidence to wield this dangerous thing behind you, up or over you, and swing hard down without hurting you. If you don't have that confidence, you won't swing as hard. You might miss. You might cut yourself. It's dangerous to get to do it without confidence, just like it's dangerous to become a criminal defense lawyer without confidence. You, you'll get pushed around. 
you'll you won't pursue certain defenses because you think ah this is just in my head so yeah the confidence is a is a it's a versatile tool in all aspects and uh, i guess i mean the last thing i want to mention about confidence or my last question about it is do you think it's more so like an inherent characteristic of like of a person or is it something um, you can learn by experience because you know anybody can be confident a sociopath can be confident um when they when they shouldn't be confident um you call me a sociopath i mean i think it's likely that you, you <laughs> no i'm kidding thank you um, no i take that as a compliment thank you but uh it, do you are you someone who leans more on the side of believing that it's something that can right. be learned that you pick up through experience by reading textbooks by going i mean having more trials and motions and veils under your belt or is it just something inherent in, in, in people and that if you I mean if you lack the confidence bone then maybe um solo practice might not be the thing for you to do immediately confidence is the self-awareness of one's ability okay it's not inherent when i was in high school i couldn't even make eye contact with the opposite sex okay i had no confidence at all i like i was afraid of girls i couldn't look at them i questioned myself i had no confidence in myself meaning i had i was i was totally disillusioned about who i was and my ability to do something all right i didn't realize i wasn't that ugly that i wasn't that dumb okay Confidence is the self-awareness of one's ability and the trust in the ability to do things. So is it an inherent thing? Well, I, I learned to get confidence by doing things. You have to take that leap of faith and do things. You know, I didn't have that confidence. I was that smart till I got to law school. You know, law school, like, affirmed to me, you know what? I am a smart guy. Um, you know, I had some confidence issues a little bit with my first case, but then I won a, a firearm bail hearing that I shouldn't have. And I was like, you know what? I can do this. So um, the way you build confidence is by doing challenging things and succeeding in them. And even when you do fail, it's to, to bounce back. So anyone can learn to be confident. In my opinion, it's not an inherent quality, but it comes from this, in like the self-awareness of one's ability and trust. Like I know who I am. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I'm not capable of. And because I am objectively self-aware of that, I have no problem being, you know, expressive and confident because I know I'm not um, living a lie. I'm not, I'm not being a sham. Like it is what it is. Mm -hmm. So anyone can learn to do it. Well, I appreciate that answer. Now, shifting the our discussion a little bit um, to the business aspect and the financial aspect of running a practice, I kind of wanted to talk about this now because, I mean, it is still a mystery to me. I know it's still a mystery to a lot of people. Could you sort of walk us through, you know, the, the steps that you took yeah. to setting up yeah. your practice? And, like, does the financial aspect of running, like, a, a business, essentially, um, does that take up? Like how, like what does, how much time does that take up out of your day? And so this isn't anywhere. And I promise I'm not going to use generalities, 
I'm going to speak specifically about everything that you need to do because it's really hard to learn. People are, when they go this way, when I started it, I'm like, uh, is there anything else I need to do? Right? So specifically, the first thing that you need to consider, consider what you want to do, what area, and where do you want to practice? That's your first consideration. So figure out what area of law you want to do, and then figure out where do you want to practice? Okay, so for me, I was like, I'm obviously going to do criminal law. I want to be in Ottawa. And then I then you try and find office space. So you ask yourself, how do you find office space? It's not easy. How do you do it? You ask lawyers. Okay, lawyers will know someone who's looking for office space. So I just reached out to some lawyers. I said, hey, I'm an up and coming uh, lawyer. I'm looking for office space. Do you, do you have anything? And if so, um, if you don't, do you know anyone who does? And so eventually I started getting replies being like, yeah, we've got space. You want to come look. So first step, where do you want to work? What area do you want to work? Find office space and see what different prices there are for the office space, you know, see what different office space will have different things. You know, there might be an elevator. There might not be an elevator. Printing might be included. Printing might not be included. An assistant, like um, someone to answer your phones might be included. It might not be. And it's important that you know, like the actual cost, right? So if I'm paying $900 for an office and I get nothing included, how does that compare to an office that's 1100 with everything included? Is the 1100 one actually more expensive? The question is, it's not. Okay, because there's printing is a massive expense, internet's massive expense, uh, your business phone's massive expense. So, uh, where, what, and the office. Okay, first thing. The second thing is, uh, you need to make sure that you have the proper insurance. Uh, so when you a law pro is how you get lawyer insurance, right? And a lot of people who work in associates that have this talk to them, but you have to get your insurance with law pro. And when you do get your insurance with law pro, if you are interested in criminal law, um, if you get insurance, uh, you can select only criminal that you're only going to do criminal. And that really reduces your civil liability. And therefore you get lower rates than other lawyers. Okay, so you go to Law Pro, get your insurance, make sure your insurance is good. So now you know what you're practicing, you know where you're practicing, you have a spot to practice, and you're properly insured. The next thing to do is go open up your bank accounts, right? You need to have two bank accounts. You need a trust and an operating. Those are the two accounts. Uh, I opened mine at BMO. You can go to any of those major banks and open up. Okay, so a trust account is simply an account where you hold client funds until you bill it, all right? So when someone, when I retain someone, say they give me $3,000, well, I haven't done anything yet. So that goes into my trust account. After I do something, I create a bill. So like three hours of work, $1,000, not say that's accurate. I make the bill, I give it to them. And then once they have the bill, I then transfer the funds from trust to my operating. Once it's in the operating, I, it's my money. Now I use it. Like it's how I pay myself. It's how I pay bills. So 
You don't ever cut everything you come goes into trust. You only take out a trust unless a client asks you to do something like to pay for um, an expert and it stays in trust until you bill for work. You create the bill, give them the bill, you move the money to the operating. And then your operating account is how you pay things, right? You can't pay from your trust, you pay from your operating. So you open those accounts and there's all these rules about interest in your trust, in your trust recruiting and blah, 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 blah. When you go to open up your accounts, the bank know, if you tell them you're a lawyer, they know what to do. They'll prepare all these forms about what to do with the interest that accrues in your trust. You don't worry about it. Um, they'll, you'll sign the papers, they'll handle it. So you don't worry about that. So you open up your, both your bank accounts, make sure you get your card. And so where are we now? You know what you're doing. You know where you're practicing. You have your office space, you're insured and you have your accounts, your bank accounts. Once you open up your bank accounts, you have to tell the law society. So there's a, a form online, you know, you're, I don't know it off the top of my head, but all you do is call the Law Society helpline and tell them, hey, I just opened up a practice and I opened up bank accounts. What do I do? They'll direct you. There's just one simple form you open. You have to, you have to fill out, sorry, and you just tell them where your bank accounts are and, and what the account number is and all that. And that's all you have to do with the Law Society. So you tell the Law Society. Once that is done, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. You have basically done the, the groundwork, the administrative work to operate. You can now operate. So you have somewhere to work. You are insured to be a lawyer. You have bank accounts to accept money and to pay yourself. And the law society is aware of them. So you have everything now. That's all you need to do. It's not that crazy. It's not that hard. Um, and then more practically speaking to be successful, well, rent out the office space and you have to ask yourself, you know, what do I really need for office space? Uh, some junior lawyers who don't have a lot of money, they'll get like a really piece of crap office just because if clients do come there, maybe there's a boardroom in the main office that they can meet them. And then other people like myself, like I needed to have a decent office because I'm going to be in there all the time and I want to be clients in there. So um, you have to find the right place for you. And if you're a sole practitioner, the most important thing is to go in chambers with other criminal defense lawyers who are experienced because that's how you're going to get your mentorship. And that's one of the biggest things I was looking for. I wanted to find an office where other experienced lawyers were and that I could pick their brain. So I work in chambers with James Ford, Ron Geerton, Brandon Crawford sometimes, and you know, I can pick their, I can pick, sorry, Brandon, I can pick their brain. Uh, well, I mean, it's true, yeah. but I can pick their brain whenever I need information, right? I can always pick their brain and you have to make sure that they're willing to do that because it is a lot of work, but uh, so find the right office space for you. Um, the next thing is a website. You have to have a website. You have to have an online presence. Uh, so luckily for me, and I'm going to give him a little shout out here. His name's uh, Hamza Ayash. He is uh, a friend of mine since I was 11 years old. And he is a big timer at Shopify. And he, for free, made my website. And 
I went with him, not simply because of money, but because I think the vast majority of criminal defense lawyers have laughable websites, just really bad websites. And as the younger generation starts to become the people that are becoming our clients, a lot of your ability is assessed on your online presence. So get a website and go get photos done and make sure your website's nice. And once your website's done, get Google ads. I use Google ads. Google ads is good for a handful of private clients. It pays for itself. Um, you know, you might, if you have any friend who's good with marketing, uh, or if you want to pay someone for consulting to teach you how to use your Google ads, it's important because it's not that simple. You have to know how to, what keywords to use all that stuff. So get a website and have, um, have a Google ads. And then the next thing is you have to get a business line because you shouldn't use your cell phone. I do use my cell phone. I'm considering not doing it anymore because people contact me 24 seven on my business, on my cell phone, they text me and it's a bit overwhelming. So uh, get a business line and you can just call Bell and get a bit, they'll offer you phone numbers, what the practice is under, and they'll come to your office and install the business line. And obviously you put the business line on your website. So there's that. Um, and then start looking into resources, you know, uh, Eamon Law series has great series of uh, books that are really good for starting out. It'll teach you the ins and outs of certain on how to uh, represent people's charged with certain offenses. And it's really good. Uh, look into the furniture that you need. Some places will have some, some won't. And then after that, you know, get business cards. Business cards aren't as big anymore. Uh, but you should still have business cards. Um, and then that's, you know, sometimes when, when, um, when a client comes into your office, you give them a business card and they will give your card out. Like if someone's like, man, do you know anyone? They're not, the person's not gonna be like, oh yeah, Google this. So just be like, yeah, here, take this card. Like I, like I've gotten clients that way. So the, the card is good. And that's basically all you need. Right. So just to summarize, what area of law do you want to do? And you really need to consider, like, can you handle doing uh, real estate business and criminal? Because you should really focus on one area of law to become an expert in. So what area, where, what city, find an office, uh, get insured, open your accounts, report your accounts, get a website finalize your office space, get a business phone, get uh, Google ads, and then look at getting some books for your practice. Well, well, thank you, Nick. Uh, I think we're going to, I mean, we went a little bit over time or longer than I expected, but uh, I appreciate it. Nonetheless, we've talked about a lot of important things, confidence, and then you gave us a very in-depth step-by-step uh, DIY into how to open your own practice. Um, so th thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. I, I look forward to my fame to come from this. And uh, seriously, though, if anyone is listening to this and they're on the fence, you know, just ask yourself some important questions and uh, you'll figure it out. Well, thanks, Nick. I will see you around. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. 
can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time, on The Law School Show.